Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. A huge part, and I would say the primary function it fulfills is really providing us a presence and access to other people, right? The actual game itself is merely just an excuse to hang out. If you look at it in terms of consumer spending, it has been for years far larger than music, TV, film, individually and even combined. There's an order of magnitude here, which I think is interesting as a business, of course, but also as a cultural industry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of Trime Connects. In this episode, I share my conversation with Jos van Drulnen, the author of a new book called One Up, Creativity, Competition, and the Global Business of Video Games. Joost is an adjunct assistant professor at the Stern School of Business at New York University. Previously, Joost was the co-founder and CEO of Superdata Research, a games market research firm which was acquired by Nielsen in 2018. He also serves as a startup advisor at Parsec Gaming, and publishes a weekly newsletter on gaming, tech, and entertainment called the Super Jost Playlist. Uh, Jost received an MA from the University of Amsterdam and his PhD from Columbia. His book One Up, which was published first last November, has been described as the essential book for understanding the changing landscape of the games industry and as by far the best book that people have read on the business of video games. And oh, my friends, what a business it is. Just to give you an idea, in sheer numbers in revenue terms, if the games industry continues to grow at its current rate, by 2025 or 2026, it will be larger in revenue terms than the entire global aerospace and defense industry. If you combine its size with its impact, its social impact, its cultural impact, you get an industry that is as important to understand as any. Finally, the history of the games industry over the last 10, 15, 20 years is a fantastic case study on the importance of non-technical innovation. And by this, I mean strategic innovation, process innovation, how the industry has evolved, how the uh, players in the industry compete, the lessons that can be learned from this industry go way beyond the actual content or the, or the subject matter that we're talking about today. We start our conversation by looking at the three main segments within the games industry. Each one has its own dynamics. So this is the PC, console, and mobile segments. When discussing the console segment, we have a really interesting discussion on the kind of rise, fall, and rise of GameStop, a company whose recent history of ups and downs on the stock market I'm sure many of you have heard of. Throughout all the segments, we follow the journey from games as a product to games as a service, this being driven by both the technology of digitalization and digitalized downloads, as well as increased broadband capacity. Next, we talk a bit about how the economic models and the economic processes behind the industry shape the artistic creation and the cultural impact. And finally, we have a discussion on how big tech is challenging the incumbent players and the prospects of how the involvement of big tech will potentially change the dynamics and structure of the industry. Just as one of a handful of the most informed, most insightful observers and analysts of this industry, an industry that by its sheer size and in cultural importance should really be better understood than it is. Speaking for myself, reading his book and having this conversation was a real eye-opener, and I really hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I have. And now, without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Jost van Drulen. Jos van Drunen, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's my pleasure. You know, I just finished reading your new book. Uh, it's called One Up, Creativity, Competition, and the Global Business of Video Games. And I found it super interesting because it's not only an analysis in history of the video game industry, which is interesting of itself, but you managed to put it in this broader context of kind of strategic process, creativity, and technical innovation 
which means that the book, even if you aren't kind of into video gaming industry itself, it can be used as kind of a case study to look at these larger kind of strategic and process innovation that drive these business models in a way that you could then cross it over to other industries. So I guess it's a, it's a roundabout way of saying it's fantastic on the subject matter, but it's also really fantastic on how you can apply it to other, other industries as well. So congratulations. Great book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, one of the things that I kind of discovered as I was reading the book, I had in my mind that, you know, the video game industry is massive, right? It must be huge. But as a kind of naive person, I didn't really know just how big it actually is. I wondered if you could put it into context of kind of other products and services in the entertainment industry. So how does it compare to other products and services in the entertainment industry, as well as maybe how it compares in size to kind of in revenues, let's say, of more traditional industries? So it's an excellent question. It's a, um, as someone who's been now studying video games, both academically and as an analyst for 20 years, it's always been a, you know, a great conversation to have about the industry because everybody always goes, well, how big is it? So I tend to have that conversation repeatedly. And in this case, I think it's a, it's a valid point because as you point out, uh, I believe that there's a lot of learnings from the industry that apply elsewhere. So to give you an understanding, um, yeah, so the games industry in 2020 was valued at about 160 billion, um, and it was uh, you know globally, and it had a growth rate of about 25 to 30 percent annually wow. compared to, I guess, in this case, pretty much anything else. Right? It's the um, you know, there's a degree to which uh, games, of course, naturally benefited from the pandemic uh, because everybody was stuck at home looking for things to do other than talk to their family, I guess. I guess that, that runs out at some point too. And so, but if you look at the, um, uh, the economic impact of the, the games industry, it's uh, in the US, for instance, it's the fourth largest uh, entertainment market, right? It contributes around $90 billion uh, directly to the economy there compared to the number three, which is cable TV, which is about 114 billion. Music is still 170 billion. So it's in that sense, it's a, uh, that's a big industry still. And then, of course, film and TV is 181, but it's it's coming up on that same level of size. If you look at it in terms of consumer spending, it is now it has been for years far larger than music, TV, film, individually and even combined uh, wow. on a global scale. So you know, and we're talking the film industry isn't all that small, of course, but if you compare it to say direct ticket sales like box office, you're talking about 12 billion dollars compared to you know, three, four times that in the US for video games. So there's an order of magnitude here, which I think is interesting as a business, of course, but also as a cultural industry. And what does it say when consumers move in a direction that, you know, at such a scale? At such a scale and such fast growth. I mean, I I did really rough calculation. I was trying, you know, some people estimate that by 2025, you know, you might be looking at 300 billion in revenues in the video game industry. And at that point, it looks to be kind of similar to in size of industry and revenues to something like the defense and aerospace industry. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, that was a real eye opener because when I when we start to talk about, you know, it's 150 billion, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it. But if I get that kind of comparator, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was my interest personally, I guess, 20 years ago, wasn't so much about the, the size of things. It's served me well career-wise, of course, that, you know, the, that one little boat that I was studying ended up going up and up constantly. And so there's a degree to which you, you can measure this in, an, in the abstract. For me personally, um, when I started my company in, in uh, 2010, I look back at that moment thinking, you know, the money that I used to open an office in Manhattan if I had taken that money and it would have just put it in video game share and bought a bunch of options, how much would I have made? And at the end of the day, like we ended up selling the business. So that worked out much better. But even so, like you know, take two was trading at the time, which is one of the largest publishers in this space at $9 a share. And today that's about 180 to $200 a share. So that went up 20 times, 23 times. Uh, over the course of nine years. So this is incredibly growing, this incredibly fast-paced, very fast-growing industry. 
and that makes for a volatility that I find personally, you know, irresistible. There's just so much happening always. So it's good news, of course, that it's going up, but it's, it also creates a lot of uh, movements that I find fascinating to study. So tell us real quickly, what was that business that you founded? What was its function? What what was it called? What did it do? And how did it end up? Right, right. So while finishing my uh, my degree at uh, Columbia University, I'd been working as a gun for hire analyst for a bunch of different research outfits and consultancies. And it always came down to you know the, the games industry. At the time, I was working on reports on free-to-play titles because they were just uh, beginning to come into vogue. As you might recall, the iPhone was launched in 2007. So by 2009, that started to really become an interesting market in mobile. And so... At the time, as I was wrapping up my studies, I said, well, look, there's an opportunity here. I think the games industry is going to uh, follow the same examples we've seen with um, music, with video, and they're going to digitize how we consume, distribute, market, publish, develop. Interactive entertainment is going to change. And nobody was thinking about this. So we set up a market research firm in 2010 called Superdata Research. Um, and what that really did was it would track digital game sales across PC, console, mobile. And we ran that business uh, till about uh, 2018 when we sold it to Nielsen and after which I integrated it and then left. But my curiosity was very simply put like, well, let's see if we can build a data set around the growth of the industry as it transitions to digital distribution and see what that does for us, right? And in the beginning, it was 5% of our, most of our customers' business, of their revenue stream, but by the end, it was 80. And so over time, we were able to you know, service all these companies with uh, data reports, uh, you know, analytics. We built a whole dashboard and a platform around it where you could see, and, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, later on, but titles used to be sold only on one platform, right? Yeah. So it would only be on console. Um, over the years, it has become cross-platform. And so a title like Fortnite lives on console, PC, and mobile. Hmm. And so how do you track that? How do you say anything meaningful about the industry or a competitor in the industry if you only look at one of those categories, right? So you, so to provide a full picture, um, we started Superdata. And, and that worked out really well. We had, um, we had a, good, a lot of, it was a lot of fun to build a company. And I really yeah. enjoyed working with people uh, looking into the games industry. Interesting story. Really great. And you mentioned the three console, PC, and mobile. And for me, it, it helps me kind of break down things. So maybe we can, before we talk about the kind of titles mm -hmm. that cross over them, let's maybe get a handle on each one and what the kind of traditional business model is for each one and, and how it's evolved. So maybe we can start with console. And these are things like PS4 or Correct. Xbox, et cetera. So you write that the business model there revolves around having the console manufacturer be an intermediary between the consumer and the creator. Can you flesh that out about what is that role of the intermediary? That's a really interesting question. And I think it's a fascinating precursor to much of what we see today. Historically, uh, if you go back to the Atari days, it was a vertically integrated business where you'd have a bunch of people soldering the motherboards in the factory somewhere, and that would roughly be the same people that would also design the games. So it was a, you know, one sort of monolithic uh, company that would do everything soup to nuts and then sell it to a consumer. Over time, they realized that by disintermediating, uh, you know, by separating the creative work from the hardware, the software development from the hardware, they would create much more value, right? And so the, the realization among game creators in the 80s was very simply put i'm in here working every day for a salary and then i come up with a game that sells 20 million copies and i get none of that money right and so in other words the creatives became wise to uh, you know, the business oh hold on sorry. my microphone is not if it happens again we'll just fix it again oh it's perfect so i'm a company man i'm working in uh in Atari or wherever, I'm coming up with a game and a game comes up, I get a hit, mm -hmm. it sells millions and I'm sitting on my salary. So I decide right. enough of this, I'm gonna do something else. So I think that's about where we got to. Right, so, so that was, so the people making the games, they became aware of the fact that doing that on a salary basis benefited their employer, but not them per se. And so, and you know, 
as you can imagine, the economics of video games then, as it is still in many ways now, are very hit-driven. Uh, in other words, you know, across all entertainment, I guess that applies. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it does work, everybody's in, right? And so mm. you'd have these breakout hits that would just make millions of dollars. And so to do that on a salary basis, eventually got a little old, I imagine, for people. And they, they became yeah. aware of this and said, well, look, we can, we can make more money on our own. So that was the, the business side, so I should say supply side. On the demand side, you had this growing issue that there wasn't really any differentiated content. So everybody had sort of a Pong type title. Everybody had a Pac-Man type title yeah, yeah. at the time. And so you'd have 30, 40 different manufacturers of hardware all coming out with the same few dozen titles that closely resembled each other. They were basically all the same. So as a consumer, there's no way for me to know what to get. Like what's what's the best game or what's the most interesting thing to do? So what that meant, of course, is that like, how do you build differentiated exclusive content for a platform? And so that's why the disintermediation of the creative talent, but also to distinguish themselves in the marketplace, it made sense for the games industry to undergo this transformation towards, uh, you know, rather than being a vertically integrated firm to become a platform where you mediate between content creators and consumers. Got it. So this is where Nintendo usually uh, comes into the conversation where they offset a lot of the issues in the market at the time by focusing on quality control and really spend most of their efforts in uh, maintaining a sense of value for consumers. So now all of a sudden they start to create deals with the software developers everywhere and say, look, you get to make games for us, but you need to adhere to the following rules. And, you know, we could list them, but let's say that they uh, included, for instance, you can only make up to five titles a year for our platform. So we don't want buckets and buckets of mediocre content. Just send us your five best ones. Hmm. And when you do, you're also going to be paying us for the license to, to publish on our platform. Um, we're going to take that money and use that money. We're going to pool it with everybody else's and we're going to use that to market the device so that there'll be lots of installs, there'll be lots of boxes mm. sold, lots of consoles sold. And that will then be the addressable market for all of us. So in other words, Nintendo formulated a platform strategy that deviated dramatically from the existing model and thereby created just a lot more value in the market because now suddenly we had this well-funded organization that could send consoles to retailers for free and and tell them that you only pay us for the ones that you actually sell right only then do you cut us a check but here they are you know let us know how things go so they could take that risk and that allowed them to build an install base and basically revitalize the industry single-handedly and that laid the groundwork for a lot of the platform economics that you see in the industry still today so that was the, the larger transition uh, in, in the 80s okay so then you have Maybe the later 80s, you zoom forward a little bit. And, and as you said, you start to get the digitalization. We see this happen in other entertainment industries. So, for example, you have this great section on Tower Records. And music mm -hmm. goes from a physical product where you go into the shops. I remember Tower Records in New York. You know, it was a great you know afternoon out. And you'd go in and you'd talk to people and they're experts, et cetera. It went to download. And then you went to streaming services. And mm -hmm. it upended the music industry and destroyed all the retail outlets, essentially. They couldn't exist. And the same dynamic happens, as you say in the book, with film. So you get from Blockbuster to Netflix. And now we get kind of developer-producer streaming. So it's kind of going back to the semi- integrated, vertically integrated, where you have kind of a Disney channel that is providing mm -hmm. both of those services. And a similar dynamic, as you said, kind of unfolded in the console games once we had this kind of uh, business model established. And we can see this kind of process beautifully playing out with the kind of the story of the rise and fall and maybe rise again of GameStop. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, because it's a bit in the news, this was, you know, you have a kind of a chapter on this uh, or a big section of the chapter in the book on this. And I thought it was really fascinating. So you tell the story about how GameStop managed to hang on through this process where what you call their cousin businesses kind of fail in this era of digital mm -hmm. distribution. But it, it's a really nice way of showing the kind of inevitable pressure that this puts mm -hmm. on these kind of business. And I wonder, you, you say that they pursued a, a strategy of deep specialization. 
that allowed yes. them to weather this kind of storm for a while. It kind of postponed it. Can you explain mm-hmm. what you mean or what that meant by deep specialization and how GameStop managed to survive where things like Blockbuster and Tower kind of all crumbled down? Absolutely. It's a, it's, I thought it was a fascinating story uh, to look at something as, you know, almost as boring and seemingly outdated as a retailer. And once I started looking into it, it became uh, far more fascinating than I thought it would be. I initially just looked at retail because it's a critical component in the, in the value chain, right? So you have yep. the manufacturers and all this other stuff. And so then eventually you go and buy the thing and then, and who cares about those companies? Like, well, you know, if you look at it, there's, in the case of GameStop, it's a specialty retailer that dominates. It's either the number one or number two, kind of depending on how you size the market uh, in the U.S. And it does so, and it somehow manages to fend off a Walmart and the targets, like these vastly larger organizations with, you know, economies of scales that would ostensibly dwarf what GameStop is able to pull together. And I think therein uh, lied also the clue for me in that GameStop managed to initially, after it was spun off from Barnes and Nobles, it managed to build an economy of scale of its own that started to emerge with electronics boutique here in the US. And so that basically meant instead of two, there would now be one specialty retailer, but they also drove uh, a whole bunch of aspects in their uh, relationship with the customer base that I think are unique. So one of them is first and foremost, the used games component to their business. Whereas with music and video, you don't really have that. You don't really go into a music retailer and get a secondhand CD, but in games, that's been partial to practice for a long time for consumers, right? That has everything to do with the fact that video games are you know, $60, $70 a pop. Yeah. And so for the average 13 year old, on average, they will purchase maybe 2.4 games a year. That's a big expense. Yeah. And so yeah. for that reason, it's also very seasonal and all this stuff, but it ends up being a, a, a conversation with the customer base where you say, well, look, why don't you come back in and I'll give it to you for in-store credit um, you know, if you sell me your game. And in return, allows GameStop then, of course, to sell it to the next customer. And so you see with hit titles that they sell the same disc six times over. And so every time they capture value from that. So that's something that I think allowed them to offset uh, a lot of the threats that would hurt adjacent businesses because they would have these ridiculously profitable components. Yeah, let's just unpick that because I thought this was a super fascinating part. So I go in and let's say I, I just can't wait to get this game. So I go into the GameStop, I pay him a 60 bucks, you know, I get it, I take it home, I binge it, and let's say, you know, 10 days later I'm finished, I'm, you know, I want another game. And so I take it back. So, so that first sell, mm-hmm. GameStop presumably has to pay the producer mm-hmm. of the game a cut on whatever the cost is. So I think you said it's around $25 or something out of the $60 that, that they sell it. So they have to share that revenue on the first sale. The kid comes back in and says, you know, here's this game. Will you, sell, you, will you buy it back? And they say, sure, we'll give you $50 of in-store credit, mm-hmm. right? And then you put the game back on the shelf for mm-hmm. 55 or whatever. Now, if they sell it again, all the revenue goes to GameStop, right? Mm-hmm. The producer doesn't get any of that. So if I can sell it, what did you say on average, six times? Six times, like hit titles would sell and sell again six times, yes. And so that just, this is buy, sell, trade platform was such a key innovation that it really like you have a great table as we're audio, so we can't show it, but you have this great table where you show how the revenues just kind of start to stack up. Mm-hmm. Now, if, now, of course, if, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, it was one of those moments when I said, oh, that's how they do it. That's yeah, why yeah. the business is so profitable. That's not a technological innovation. I mean, it took some back-end technology to make sure that the stock was in place and, you know, that you manage that whole process. You show how the price went up on the on the mm-hmm. accounting and having to run these kind of double books of new and, and used games. But what a great process innovation, oh, right? Absolutely. It's just absolutely, absolutely great. No it's technology you. involved, but just, just an idea. Right. I, th- I believe that they have like 400 people somewhere in Arkansas and their entire job is just to keep tabs on all the used game sales. Wow. Okay, so the, whatever the cost is of 400 people. Yeah, that's, that's not going to... It makes 20, 25% of their annual revenue. So it's yeah. like $1.3 billion for them. Like, uh, they can afford it. Yeah, they can afford it. So, so, But if I'm a game creator, right? 
I'm like pissed off at this, right? I'm not very happy about this. You're selling my mm -hmm. game over and over. You're getting all this money from me. Oh, yes. And I don't get any taste of that at all, right? I just get it at the first go. Plus, you're cannibalizing all my other mm -hmm. sales because mm -hmm. I can't keep selling it at 60 bucks a pop because now they can get it at 50 or 45 or 30 or 20. If they wait long enough, they can get it at 10, you know? So not only do I not get a taste of it, it robs me of all these future sales. So what I thought was interesting is, you know, is kind of like you tell the story, what happened next? So they needed to get a way to stop people doing this and start to recoup some of this. And along comes digitalization, right? Along mm -hmm. comes digital downloads. So how did that stop the process? It's interesting, as you put out, the way it stopped the process was that publishers would adopt uh, digital distribution models and basically keep more of the money for themselves. Right? So digital distribution in the games industry means a few things. One of them is, of course, is to it implies it's the, how you reach the customer, the distribution of it all, but it also affords you to build different revenue models. And so in this context, you know, conventionally you would buy a box, play the game, and then maybe sell it back to the store or just leave it on the shelf in your house. But so that would be the full experience. Games at the same time as all this is taking place, were transforming from a product into a service. And I really mean by that, that you would have the base game and then you have additional microtransactions and add-on content and extra levels that you could, uh, could download and attach as a bundle to the original primary game, so to say. So publishers, they embraced this you know, with both hands, with both arms. And they said, look, not only does this continue to make us money, but we now are also preventing all of these like used sales where we get none of the margin, right? Whereas conventionally that would always go to GameStop and the publishers wouldn't see any of it. Now they were able to kind of, you know, create more revenue for themselves. And so that's the, that transition was, I would argue, accelerated and further fueled by the publisher's desire to, of course, maximize their own returns and get away from this wildly unfair, as they would call it, uh, model that GameStop proposed at the used game sales. Historically, and the, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just saying it completely robbed GameStop of their power as well because they... It undermined it greatly, yes, absolutely. So it, by moving away, GameStop lost uh, you know, a lot of its... Um, you know, it, it made its, mar its model uh, less robust. Where I think it's... Uh, becomes a sticking point is that there's three constituents here, right? So you have, of course, GameStop and the publishers, but you also have the platform holders. So the platform holders still very much rely on GameStop and, you know, other retailers to get product out there to educate the consumer market. So they still very much bear themselves. And so if you're Nintendo, even though that's the case, you're still sort of tied up with GameStop anyways, for better or worse, because they help you sell the consoles, the actual devices. But the third-party publishers like Activision and EA, which are not owned by platforms, they had the best time with this, obviously. They, they immediately embraced the model and said, we now no longer have to pay this GameStop tax and watch them make all this money. In GameStop's mind, their sort of philosophy around it was, uh, well, look, it's like a used car. Like, you know, Toyota doesn't get money every time the car changes hands and owners. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not all the chatter we hear about non-fungible tokens where every time it changes hands, the, the original creator gets a cut. It's, you know, you sell it once and it drives off the lot and it's out of your life. And if that owner wants to sell it, then yeah. that's their right. And that doesn't involve you. And that's, of course, that's a fair assessment to some degree, but it's, you know, unlike a car, which deteriorates in value, the game retains its value, right? The colors and the experience, they, they stay exactly the same over time. So there was always a large debate, but GameStop didn't care. And this was really the first time the publishers were able to kind of get in between that, you know, the relationship of the customer and the retailer. It's a fascinating story. So they also, I guess, one of the things they get from getting people to download and download all these, mm -hmm. what do you, would you call micro transactions? And you then get to collect the data as well on use, don't you? That if you put oh, it, if, if, if you have the, the game as a product and you put it out there in the world and people plug it in, they play, it's mm -hmm. really hard to know everybody stops playing when they get to level six because it's too hard mm -hmm. or everybody hates this. Nobody goes into this area because, you know, mm -hmm. now not only you can cut out any intermediary, mm -hmm. you go straight to the customer, the customer downloads it. 
and you can see what they do, what's popular to put in. So it, it adds into the creative element as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it was a huge innovation creatively to have real-time feedback on what your players actually play, right? But as you point out, like what areas do they visit? What, what levels do they play and play again? What items do they prefer to purchase, right? Is it the purple swords or is it the green cow or is it a red tank yeah uh, you know all of those become basically conversations around inventory management and optimizing to build add-on content based on consumer preferences and demand and so you start to see you know anywhere from initial beta testing and early stage development where you collect some uh, feedback from the from the user base all the way to these very advanced models where you say okay we're going to have a very particular cadence in releases and, and downloadable content that follows the original release to extend you know, how much money and how much money we can charge over time. And so it becomes a very different composition. Suddenly now it's no longer, you know, we hide in a studio for three years with a $100 million budget and we'll come out when it's done. Yeah. Suddenly it now becomes a much more iterative process of creativity which is a philosophical shift. I think not everybody has fully embraced it yet, but it affords you so much more feedback in your creative process that I think it's incredibly valuable. And it becomes kind of a co-creation process almost. And it, I mean, at the yes. same time, you had this digitalization, which allowed this business model innovation, but also uh, mm -hmm. the other business model innovation that I thought was really interesting because as internet quality goes up, mm -hmm. right? The speed goes up, the broadband capacity goes up suddenly we can do multiplayer games, mm -hmm. right? With lots of players occupying the same world. And if it's digital anyway, you have this process and, and this is a way of, it's a beautiful innovation to, as you said, spread out the revenue model. So mm -hmm. after completing, as I understand it, you complete a story mode and then people go on and make up their own stories with you know they go on after they're done with the story multiple people go on and play in the world more or less and that did two things and if you could walk us through it how did it minimize piracy because that was a big issue on some of the games and how did it help the developers with people just playing around in these worlds mm -hmm. in a multiplayer way that's it's an excellent question so piracy of course is um the same in games uh, as it is in uh, music, uh, with the exception that you can listen to music and it doesn't require 10,000 other people to also be listening to that exact song at the same time. With games, uh, you know, a huge part, and I would say the primary role, the primary, the primary function it fulfills is really, uh, you know, providing us a presence and access to other people, right? So often, and that I think applies for video games, uh, applies to video games as much as it does any other form of play, um, the, the actual game itself is, is merely just an excuse to hang out with other people, right? We, is it really that necessary to go to a football stadium and watch a game for you know, a couple hours on Sunday? Or is it really the social experience around it, right? Where you all yeah. wear your favorite colors for your team and so on. So I think it's a sort of a, a digital or an online version of that is, is a natural extension of behavior that you see elsewhere in society. And so piracy then becomes uh, much less of an issue because you can't really participate uh, if you have an illegal copy, right? It would just be, so if the same uh, serial number logs in twice, as a publisher, you can prevent it because they have to log into the publisher's servers around the world and get verified before they get access to the game. And so that reduces a lot of, uh, of these uh, conventional ills, these, these problems that you would have in entertainment uh, around digitalization, because it does make the game easier to transport, right? You can download the whole game uh, and, and distribute it relatively easily, legally or, or illegally. But by having an online component, you bypass a lot of those issues. So that's the first of it. And that reminds me, there's a theme in the book that picks up several times. It's this interplay between the creativity side of it and the mm -hmm. business side of it. And you do a great job of showing, I think really convincing that they aren't just two different activities happening kind of without any connection. <clears throat> and in this case, you get piracy concerns. I'm tempted to ask, you know, 
well, what comes first? Do they decide to create these multiplayer games because this is a way that you stop piracy? Or do they come up with a multiplayer game and go, oh, but look, it stops piracy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the wrong question. I think that's what you'd say. I'll, uh, because they feed on each other. Is that what you find in the industry? I like that. I like that challenge. It's the... So knowing the companies uh, like publishers and, uh, and developers out there, I would say that this is an industry, at least during that stage, uh, and we can talk about more contemporary uh, participants in a moment, but let's say Activision Blizzard, when it released uh, World of Warcraft, which is this mind-blowing success, uh, they did not serve the corporate needs first. I think they really just wanted to make a really cool game. Hmm. Right, uh, and in their case, you had um, Warcraft as a franchise existed. It was a, a real-time strategy game. It had some online components, but not to the extent that you could do with thousands of people in an online world. And you end up, um, you know, extending that franchise into an online setting because what Blizzard, you know, the one half of Activision Blizzard, does so well is take a concept that's very popular and then popularize it and make it massively accessible. Right, so that's really where their strength lies. So in their case, they were just really pursuing a creative agenda that would connect lots of people and you know, just offer this fantastic novel experience at an unprecedented scale and so on. So in that sense, I don't think that the corporate needs were served first, other than, of course, like we want to make lots of money in the business of publishing games, but not some insidious thing around like, oh, this will help us you know, uh, optimize returns so much. Uh, but... If you look at things, and this might be getting a little bit ahead of things, but so if you look at the contemporary setting where you have uh, an emphasis on subscriptions, for instance, the subscription-based services that we find in the market today, and then I'm talking particularly around companies like uh, Amazon and Google, for instance, there you do find that the corporate needs have determined that that is a model, a revenue model that gets a much higher valuation on the, on the stock market, right? Transaction-based companies are valued three to five X, service-based and subscription-based business models, they get valued at 20 X. And so naturally then you start to see these ideas popping up saying like, well, you know, what can we build that has a subscription component at the center of it? And all of a sudden now we have Google Stadia and all of a sudden we now have Amazon Luna. And so in that sense, I do believe, and I've spoke to a few executives there and they, would claim that it's like, well, yeah, that we just thought that that would work for us. And so that's uh, an example of when the corporate need overrides sort of a creative vision, which I would further confound and say like, well, neither of them have produced anything interesting uh, creatively. So that's why you do see that, but that's also, that's the tech industry. So that's not conventionally a creative Mm -hmm. industry in itself. So if you go back to the original example of World of Warcraft, you know, I think that's um, what's been so fascinating to me is this larger conversation around what works best in the market is the best game, right? As if there was some naive understanding of how markets work, uh, where things naturally become uh, sort of efficient and consumers find the best content all on their own without any kind of problem. You know, so much of that conversation has been sort of underrepresented and sort of not been thought about uh, well enough. And so I think the business components to any successful creative operation, whether that's a developer or a publishing conglomerate, there's a lot of room for improvement. And so the example of GameStop in terms of retail and the same thing for each of the major publishers that are successful today is that they've each come up with a very creative business strategy that gives them an edge, that gives them uh, you know, a unique way to approach the market. And, and so that um, combined effort uh, of creativity around content as well as business strategy, that's, that's one of the things that I find most fascinating. It is great. And, it's, and, and you capture it perfectly. It- I think it's also capturing this kind of rising from the dead of, of the next segment, the kind of the PC segment. And we probably won't spend a lot of time on this one because I want to get to mobile. But here we see digitalization at work, right? We see multiplayer at work. We see the kind of co-creation process in this framework. It, it's just like in spades. And, and essentially, it's like a platform, a console platform, but it also you don't also watch TV from it. You do your work with, on it. You know? So it's, it's a multi-purpose platform, but not all entertainment. And maybe the console, they add value on the console by adding in TV services and other entertainment that you use the monitor for. And the PC is you use the monitor to work, but you can also use it to game, something like that. I mean, I know that's a simplification, but does that as a very rough first cut make sense? 
Yes, absolutely. And and I would add to that also that the the setting of playing PC games is very different, right? Um, when yeah. when you play on your mobile phone, you might be standing in the in the line at the grocery store, or maybe you just uh, you know just goofing off for twenty minutes uh, on the couch somewhere. So that's one particular setting in which you would play on your phone. Uh, for console, it's much more of a dedicated experience. But most people will play it on the large screen in their house, in the center of the living room, yeah. or they have some kind of man cave somewhere for all I care. Whereas a PC, that's much more of an office setting, right? That's where I do my bookkeeping and that's where I check my email and now I'm going to go play. So it's a very different setting and naturally, therefore, it's also a different experience. Yeah. So let's get to mobile for a second because as I understand it from the book, it's the fastest growing. It's become the biggest segment as I understand it. And mm -hmm. in a way, it's, it seems so different from the other two. Mm -hmm. It is gaming, so it's a it's a video game experience. You describe the business model as a vehicle to capture people's attention mm -hmm. and to keep them in front of ads for as long as possible. It's kind of a ne never ending click hole. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so I was just wondering, you know, let's go through it a little bit first of all, and then we'll get to that. So you see that content for the mobile is complementary asset to the mobile platform. So instead of the main show, it's a kind of complementary asset. Tell us what you mean by that and how does that feed into the business model? Right. When Apple came out with the iPhone in 2007, it was really positioned as a telephone slash pocket computer, right? You at the time would have uh, personal digital assistants, PDAs, and Nokia was big with this. Blackberry was a big competitor there. And Apple effectively came out with a device that would allow you to make phone calls, but also check your email and surf the net. That was roughly the extent of it. Uh, the, I don't think Apple in its wildest dreams ever imagined that it would become this primary gaming platform, right? I think that that was purely by sheer luck. Steve Jobs never liked video games. He repeatedly spoke out against them. He, he used to work at Atari and they fired him. So, you know, I don't think that he had a very warm relationship with the interactive <laughs> entertainment industry. Suddenly now they find themselves at the forefront of this like global industry. And so the thing to know about mobile games is that early on, people were very much unfamiliar with how to use a smartphone, right? a swipe-based touchscreen interface. For the same reason that you find Minesweeper and uh, Solitaire on a, uh, on a Windows machine, you, know, you always ask that question, like, why did they install those together? Because at the time when they came out with a graphic user interface, nobody knew how to double click or drag and drop anything, right? That was a totally new behavior in, in just in terms of using the technology. So the same with, with iPhones, like you had to swipe things, which is where Angry Birds came in so, uh, so successfully, right? It showed oh, you that yeah, the, yeah. the mechanics of the game show you how to use the device, right? It showcases it and it does that so eloquently. So for that reason, uh, you know, Apple eventually started to embrace gaming to some extent. They wanted to make things more accessible to a larger audience of uh, you know, creative folk and designers and developers that would then make applications on its you know, fancy new device. I guess in the same way that you would do that historically on a more of a Mac-based setting or a PC-based setting. But people imagine, immediately started to gravitate towards games. That was really where most of the fun was because now we had this new device, but I don't want to use it to check my email so much as I want to just play games on it as well. So very quickly then they became uh, an intermediary between, on the one hand, this rapidly growing audience of smartphone owners, and on the other hand, uh, all these creatives trying to make small mobile games. Uh, you know, For a hundred bucks, you can get a license. Now you're an official Apple developer. Uh, you can publish your content on there in front of this growing audience. So everybody's excited about this. And then Apple starts to mitigate and mediate that relationship uh, over, over time. So by 2009, they had sanctioned free-to-play monetization, right? Previously that had been, you know, not illegal, but they just, they didn't allow, they didn't facilitate it. By 2009, they allowed it, allowing people to give came content away for free and then monetizing you know, their most vervent players over time. That opened the floodgates, right? So suddenly it goes from a few hundred million to like several billion dollars in revenue annually. And now we're off to the races. And suddenly right. now Apple becomes this incredibly successful uh, gaming platform, it, you know, almost in spite of itself, because they, like I said, they never really cared. 
And does and Apple so take is, a take a cut of those in-game purchases as well? Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. This is a heavily contested aspect of it. So they borrowed from, I believe, the cable TV industry the sort of model of taking thirty percent of everything that's sold, whether that's games or music or video on their platform across all categories. And so they did that with iTunes, of course, with music. And so they immediately copied and pasted that same logic on the games component. So Apple takes 30%. Uh, I believe that they, re so they recently changed it um, to only 15% for the first million dollars if you're a small developer. So half, but whatever, like that's, it's not really a meaningful amount of money for the bottom line. It generates about $15 billion a year for Apple in 2020. Wow. So it's a substantial component. And that's just money coming in, right? So this is a company that makes almost as much as like a Microsoft and a Sony, but you know, reinvest only a fraction back into the ecosystem, which is, of course, then, if we spoke earlier about the contentious relationship between GameStop and publishers around secondhand sales, this is sort of the contemporary equivalent of that, where now we have Apple and Google charging 30% tax, basically, as people refer to it. Uh, for game companies. And so if you're making a billion dollars, 300 million of that goes to Apple, right? And they say, well, what are the services that I get in return? Uh, well, they say transaction fees and we do some marketing, but it's not really an actively uh, involved company in terms of reinvesting in the ecosystem. They really just charge a rent is the yeah. opinion of, of all large companies, which is why you now see, for instance, the, uh, uh, the lawsuit with Epic Games and Apple when they're basically duking it out saying, is this fair? And, and Apple argues that it is, and Epic says it isn't. And, and so we go. so that's a, an ongoing conversation, but of course that has everything to do with the fact that mobile grew into a $75 billion industry, you know, over the course of just a few years. And I guess it's what, what the likes of Apple provide are, it's just the network. It's just the installed user. It's the users that can play it on their uh, devices. Yes, like you said, the they, they do they do some other stuff, but it's if there was only a hundred people with the phone, it wouldn't matter, right? But they can attract the game designers because they say, well, sixty percent or you know seventy percent of a really big pie is still a really big pie for me, and mm -hmm. Apple just sits there and essentially just gets money for free. Yep, no, I, I completely. I mean, so this is you know, part of the reason why Apple is valued so high and it's you know worth almost $2 trillion in market capitalization. So for all those reasons, I think it's, they've benefited, uh, uh, you know, greatly at the same time. It's like, well, but what are they really doing for all of this? It's, yeah. it's always a matter of the contention. Well, and also on the mobile, I guess, this is like the data collection on steroids that we talked about on the console because mm -hmm. they can now start to see real-time data about how long people play, how where they stop, how you know, usage through time. So you can see the collection of this data being used. And I know in the book you do a great job of outlining you know, what the regulatory environment is for the data, but this is kind of a new new field. You can see them using the data and AI to create optimally addictive mobile games targeted mm -hmm. to specific demographics. Um, and that's a kind of, you know, does it trouble you at all to see that kind of development? Well, you know, naturally, I mean, of course, right? And I'm a, I'm a father too. I have an eight-year-old out here somewhere doing God knows what. So, you know, I, I worry about uh, the interactions that he has in his life. So, but, you know, as someone as part of the industry, you know, I think that the, uh, the use of data should always be regulated uh, very, you know, very precisely. I think, uh, you know, Personally, I think people should have ownership of their own data. Uh, you know, but that's not a model I think we're going to see. But there is a degree to which uh, you know, making the device the center of the universe, uh, you know, I think overshoots its own goal at some point. You know, I, I come from a generation. I was raised by a generation, I should say, where it's like, well, the, the phone is for making appointments, not for speaking on, not for sitting on the phone for hours and hours with your friends. Which, of course, as a teenager, I would do. I would talk to my friends for hours. My dad would get mad and say, well, you should just really make an appointment and then talk to them in person. Yeah. And so I think, that, you know, to that extent, I, I, I see now the same instinct in myself. Saying that, well, you shouldn't be on your phone so much. Um, and they optimize it for usage, right? They make it. Uh, so the, the improvements in terms of usability and the value that it creates as a device, like the functionality and just the, the general feel of it, I think is great, those improvements. At the same time, 
they also make it so that we spend four to five hours a day staring at these little rectangle, you know, all hours of the day. So I think that there is some, uh, some natural limitations that we need to have um, and that it, it, it can be uh, insidious, right? So there's some game uh, categories where you kind of feel like, okay, this is going a step too far. Um, we did quite a bit of research um, with Superdata over the years in the social casino gaming. And while it's all above the board, it's all sort of, you know, uh, wholesome to some degree, some of the participants in that space can write that uh, that margin really narrowly, right? It's, so you would go to these conferences, it's like these are flat out gambling companies from countries where, you know, regulations are much more lax and they have no creative interest other than just extract as much value for themselves as possible and, and everybody's be damned, like they don't care. And so, but that naturally attracts, of course, that kind of a participants naturally flock to a market that's as big as it is and as mainstream as it is. So it's an inevitable component to it. And what I believe, and then I'll shut up about it, but so the thing that is missing for me in the context of a mobile industry today is in the conventional, the sort of the, over the history of the games industry, there's always been a very strong tradition of self-regulation where uh, compared to other entertainment categories, game companies would compete fiercely, but always come together on these shared issues around rating systems and, you know, what is allowable, what's permissible, what's appropriate for audiences. In a mobile contemporary environment, uh, it's much more of a wild west where, you know, there is some of that, but uh, that tradition of self-regulation has eroded to some degree, right? There's not as much oversight. There's not as much interest in doing the right thing. I believe, and so that's a bit of a loss, right? I think that there's um, that could be better. And the attraction of such a lot of money to be had if you can successfully compete for people's attention and how you compete for that attention, that's where, at least for me, it becomes a little bit frightening when you, you have the amount of data that you can to specifically design games to capture and keep people's attention in that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of effort around that too. I mean, it's the um, you know it's it's not just mobile and and Apple in that sense or Google. It's also companies like Electronic Arts uh, institutionalizing things like loot boxes. There's a big uh, to do a year or so ago when they bring out a new game, and in order to get all of the content, uh, you know, you'd have to spend thousands of dollars, and so you end up kind of. Uh, but it's it's not a for purchase mechanic, it's basically you you buy the chance of getting an item that you want. Oh, right. So, so then it's about gambling, yeah. And now it becomes basically gambling, right? It's because yeah. there's it's not technically gambling because you can't take money out of the ecosystem, but you know it's geared towards getting you to spend as much as possible, and it becomes really you know obviously bad. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is I have a couple of sons as well. I have a fourteen and a seventeen year old, and the fourteen year old's a big gamer and. I've talked to him about a lot of the stuff and even more so from reading your book. But what he was saying, what I found interesting is the stuff that him and his friends are interested in buying is not anything that improves their playing ability. Right. In fact, as you document in the book, this is kind of a deadly chalice. You know, you can't do that because it destroys, they lose the integrity of the game. They don't want to be playing against somebody that got to where they are in the game just by spending money. What mm -hmm. they really want to spend the money on is the cool hat or the the decoration that goes on their gun or the whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's these kind of vanity objects that seem to me, from from my old man point of view, I like why why are what, what are you why would you possibly spend money on that? But mm -hmm. to him, that's what he wants to spend money on, not on. I don't want to be able to buy a super sword mm -hmm. or a super gun or whatever it is because that cheats the game itself. So there's mm -hmm. a kind of cultural norm that disciplines some of the revenue generation that could come from these games. And I think that's an interesting element. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just changing topics here a little bit. Because they become such a, a strong force and a powerful kind of cultural force, you wrote that it's it's a terrifying thought to consider that given gaming's growing cultural relevance – and role as a form of expression, the greater part of this industry remains operated by a single demographic. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us why this should be a concern, and and do you think it will change anytime soon? It's a it's a concern, only to the extent that it would be a concern that if the New York Times 
editorial room was run only by uh, white men in their 40s, right? If we were okay with a homogenous makeup of a content creator, then, you know, we should be okay with all this. But I think, that, and that's how for a long time in the games industry it's been, right? It's been basically 30-year-old white guys making games for 30-year-old white guys. And so <laughs> as it becomes, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a form of, I mean, you pointed out just now, people, they buy vanity items to express themselves and to mediate uh, you know, the social layer of an online world. Okay, well, so that's basically, um, you know, imagine the fashion industry was only you know, <laughs> yeah, run yeah. by like cisgendered, uh, you know, it, it, it just seems uh, in any, whether that's entertainment and media or just a cultural industry, I think it would be wildly alarming. Um, but that's how it's been for a long time. And then you can get into the conversation with regards to, well, where do all these programmers and developers come from? And, and why aren't there more women or people of mm. color involved in those conversations? Uh, but so now that we're here, that now that gaming has sort of breached the mainstream and is you know, played by billions of people around the world, it will naturally attract a much more diverse uh, creative class as well, where now more people will be uh, willing to have their own voices heard and be expressive in their own way. So I believe that it's um, uh, starting to transition in a positive way. I've, I've recently invested in a company called the Glow Up Games, and it's it's the perfect, I mean, it's perhaps a tangent, but it's a perfect example for me. It's female-led uh, women of color that are making these really interesting new games that you would never expect from a more conventional model of game design. And I think that that's really what this is about. But you, you have to uh, have many voices in, in this industry as you do in every other one. Because well, it seems strange not to have that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And a missed opportunity because, it, you know, uh, you, you expand your audience by providing things that are attractive to that audience. And maybe 30 old white guys don't know exactly what, you know, the, everybody else wants to see and do and buy and experience. So hopefully... That alone, that kind of economic imperative will drive firms to embrace that diversity at that le mm -hmm. at that level because otherwise they're just missing a lot of potential. I, I mean, that's that's the shortest uh, explanation is, of course, like, well, it's going to cost you money, right? It, yeah. Because it's not because women, for instance, don't like to play games. It's just that for the longest time, no one was making anything interesting for them, yeah. right? So, yeah. so that's how that goes. So I want to, I mean, I, we're running out of time. You've been super generous with your time. I, I just have a couple kind of more quick questions. These are kind of be rapid fire. Um, and it's more on the on the future. So it, you mentioned Fortnite uh, and you have this great session section in the book on Fortnite as a category breaker. Um, mm -hmm. And it means that it, it, it operates kind of seamlessly across the three segments, consoles, PCs, and mobile. And is that where you're, you think things will go in order to compete at the very highest level, you're going to be able to be, have to be completely seamless. And will the category players continue to agree to do that? That's a really good question. So the Fortnite was ex exceptional in that they convinced Sony of all companies to, to play nice. Uh, I think when we're talking about an industry that thrives when it comes to network effects, um, when it, you know, when the largest possible addressable audience benefits all of us, I think that that's where Epic Games and Fortnite uh, have been leading the charge. And I think that's an inevitable component of the future. I think we, you know, now that we've seen the use case and the and the, and the great success that that can bring, I believe that that's what we're going to be seeing more of, where things are cross-platform. And then, and it's not just from a publisher perspective where one game is playable on all these different devices and connect between them, I think also the platforms themselves are going to steer towards it. So I believe uh, in Microsoft and Sony, while they've been fierce competitors for years as console manufacturers, they're going to be working much more closely together, right? And so it's, you see Sony moving into the PC area a little bit more. You see Microsoft saying, oh, look, we have Game Pass, uh, you know, it's it's going to be accessible on any device, and so it's only a matter of time before all of this is uh, universally accessible. And then all of a sudden, I think we're much more closely to uh, say a telecom industry where mm. 
if I'm not on the same network as you are, uh, if I'm not paying the same telecom operator, I can still call you on my phone. I can have a different device. I can have a different service, but we can still communicate between us. And I think that that's what's going to be uh, somewhat of a, of a shape of things to come in the games industry as well. It'll be interesting to then to see how they differentiate in order to try to drive their own market share. Exactly. Um, so we mentioned it a couple of times, big tech getting more and more involved. Um, what's likely to happen? I mean, are they likely to swallow up this industry or will they play their, their classic platform role? Um, mm -hmm. And will the uh, kind of console worlds, the PC, that they'll, you know, it'll all just become this network that we log into our Amazon account or our Google account and get the games that we've paid for to subscribe to in that, in that setting? Is that, is that where we're headed? I don't think so. Um, and I say this because of what I mentioned earlier with regards to Amazon Luna and Google Stadia, you know, both of those, you have to imagine that, so the, the console industry historically resets every five to seven years. So every five to seven years, you have a new device coming out, a new generation of hardware coming out. And so that resets the market, right? Because all of those installs for the PlayStation from last generation are now going to have to buy a whole new device all over again. And so there's an opportunity for newcomers to, to kind of you know, gain market share. Google and Amazon pitched their cloud gaming services right at that critical moment in the console cycle saying, hey, we, you know, and the advertising left uh, nothing to the imagination. It was very clear. It's like, oh, you don't need to buy a box. You can just you get a subscription and play on any device. And so it was squarely targeted at uh, undermining that model. Um, the problem is, is that uh, both of them are terrible at creating contents, right? They have some interesting third-party content and they spend a bunch of money on, on subsidizing it and marketing it. But none of it really holds any water to the extent that it differentiates them as serious competitors. And so I think it's based on, that's one of the reasons why uh, Amazon and Google and the big tech companies, they're just really crap at content. That's the sort of, and I think, it, so, but to put that in economics terms, uh, sometimes it's a, uh, you know, vertical integration can be destructive, you know, destroys value because companies are much better able when they are disintermediated to create value for, for themselves, but also for the ecosystem around them. And if you try to shove it all into one monolithic organizational structure, I think a lot of it gets lost. And so by having them all have to compete with each other and play nice with each other, I think that it's a far greater driver of value and growth than having big tech sort of take over. I, ju I just don't think they can do it. Yeah, well, I hope you're right because I think that that creates a, a healthy competition and and it creates the myriad and variety in the games and the content. But mm -hmm. I mean, I one can imagine. I mean, I don't know if this is, makes any sense, but let's say I'm one of the big tech companies and I and I want to go after the console segment. So one of the things that I, I noticed in your analysis of the market is not just yours, but the, these three blocks of mobile, uh, console, and PC. But the console also has a TV, right? Also has the monitor. And we get smart TVs that have television services built into them. Mm -hmm. So let's say you had Google go to Samsung and say, mm -hmm. we're going to have built into your TV the gaming platform. You can play because, because they're available to play across all the platforms like Fortnite. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what box you have anymore. In fact, you don't need a box. You buy the TV. It's the same kind of five-year cycle, let's say, a product cycle, maybe a little bit longer. But that captures you in, and you just it's just part of the bundle. The, mm -hmm. the TV manufacturer gets a little bit more of a elongated revenue stream. Google gets, gets to destroy. I, I, it could be Google. It could be anybody. But they get to destroy the console because why do you have this separate piece of kit sitting underneath your television? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look, that's a conversation that's been around for a long time. Like smart TVs and their ability to become, to integrate a console type chipset or device into it, that's been around for a long time. And it's sort of a natural line of thinking when you consider, well, you know, it all fits. Everything gets smaller and smaller every year. So why not, you know, they all use the same connective technology like HDMI cables and so Why not just build it all into one device? You know, it's never really worked. 
Okay. Like even and I, you know, I first wrote about this like 15 years ago, and it's and it's and they still haven't been able to to see this through. I think it's the uh, value of having separate components, you know, that, that makes it so that it it stays separate. But I believe that it's a a, a recurrent conversation. I'll I'll raise you one and say, Tesla has been uh, looking into this too. Right? The electric cars. You know, Tesla, I think, has, has proved itself to be kind of willing to take a lot of experiments. And Elon Musk is a big gamer. So uh, one of the lines of thinking there has been like, well, why can't we integrate a console in the car? And in, in the same way that I could use to play DVDs in a minivan, I've never owned a minivan, but, let's, you know, that's a possibility. But in the <laughs> yeah. same way that you have it in an, in an airplane, why can't I have two screens in the back for my kids to have access to some kind of celestial game console? And they can just beam down all these games while I drive. They sit in the back and they play. You could argue a little bit about form factor and if that's you know safe for traffic and appropriate, but it's all possible. But it doesn't necessarily make sense to combine components in that way. Okay. Well, it's um, I'm embarrassed to have a 15 year old idea that's already been proven uh, wrong, but uh, it was just it just made me think that maybe that would be a possibility. Okay, so. It's- so just one final question to get you out of here. And again, um, I recommend everybody the book uh, for for all of the reasons we've talked about. It's one up again, Creativity Competition and the Global Business of Video Games. So just one question. Over the last year, you know, lockdown and all, can you think of a single work, a book, TV, movie, game, whatever it might be, that you recommend to the audience, fiction, nonfiction, anything that you saw or, or heard or listened to, this last mm-hmm. year that you thought that brought a little bit of light into this dark year? Uh, I'll, I'll give you two. I'll give you a book and a game. One game that I really enjoyed, and it's it's not related uh, on, uh, by design, but I just stumbled upon it, is uh, A Plague's Tale. It's this um, this video game. It's available on, on any device, uh, uh, I believe. But so it's a, um, you know, basically you're... Your protagonist as a teenage girl that has to save her little brother during a 17th century outbreak of the plague in what is obviously sort of what's uh, what's France. So they're during this wartime conflict. So it's just this massive apocalyptic experience where rather than being this super strong hero where you can fly around and punch the bad guys, you are a very vulnerable character and you rely on stealth and sneaking around most of the time. And so that one really uh, resonated with me this year because it's, you know, in a sense, I guess, perhaps we were all feeling vulnerable during the pandemic in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And so, so that one I liked very much. And it sort of allowed me to kind of relieve some of the tension there because you can actually make progress and like, you know, eventually beat the game and win. So that's where games always make sense, right? I think you yeah, always yeah, of course. <laughs> and then, of course, the lighting things up, I, uh, I, I uh, found myself rereading uh, Calypso by David Sedaris which is this semi-autobiographical uh, set of essays, which I find just hilarious. Like it's a, you know, as, as someone in his 40s, mid 40s going through all this, you know, and after having left uh, Nielsen after integrating Superdata there, sort of at this vacuum, I was supposed to travel the world and, uh, you know, go see my friends and catch up on all these conversations that had to, you know, had to wait because of his working. Uh, you know, I, and then of course you don't get to do it. It's like, oh God, it's this vacuum of sitting at home. <laughs> I thought that his perspective was very sort of refreshing and sort of uh, alleviate a lot of that uh, uh, pandemic stress. All right. Well, that's, those are great recommendations. Uh, Jos, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, man. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.